Welcome to the White Wall Cinema Podcast. Today we'll be discussing Martin Scorsese's epic Killers of the Flower Moon, starring Leonardo DiCaprio, Robert De Niro and Lily Gladstone. Welcome to the White Wall Cinema Podcast. We're an independent cinema in the centre of Brighton. Uh, specialising in interesting, fun, unusual, overlooked cinema, classic and new. And uh, I'm here once again for our uh, next podcast about uh, Martin Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon. Uh, I'm here with Layla. Hello. Who is my uh, co-conspirator in all things cinema. Uh, and uh, as I say, we're going to talk about Killers of the Flower Moon, which is by the great Martin Scorsese. Um, obviously people know, well, people sh- should know, I hope, Scorsese's kind of back, uh, back catalogue, but that includes Raging Bull, Taxi Driver, um, The Wolf of Wall Street, um, The King of Comedy, The Departed, um, The Irishman, um, I mean, go on, <laughs> any, any others? I mean, so many. Alice doesn't live here anymore. <laughs> yeah, I want to the... reviewed on this podcast. On a, yeah, another podcast that you can listen to. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a huge back catalogue, maybe the most significant back catalogue in the history of modern cinema, um, or, you know, uh, uh, perhaps the, the greatest living director or working director. Um, and uh, as, as I mentioned in the intro, Robert De Niro, Lily Gladstone, Leonardo DiCaprio. And it's the story of... Um, it's really about the story of the Osage Nation, which is, of course, uh, Native American, um, a time when uh, this particular Native American community were, uh, their land was essentially sitting on a lot of oil. And um, they were, I think in the, maybe in the film in the beginning, it mentions that they are sort of something along the lines of per capita, some of the richest people on earth at this time. Um, so the the beginning of the film is very much them being um, uh, people looking to get you know to, to to ferry them around in cars and and sort of serve their needs because they are the ones with money and they're being chased around by by uh, white people basically looking to 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 find uh, ways to make money off them. I think they're sort of being initiated into consumerism yes in that, those scenes yeah that's the that's perhaps part of the idea yeah and and but the larger story is then the way in which people um well namely white people then interlope into the community uh in such a way <clears throat> i mean it's tied up it's tangled up in a lot of things and again this is going to be a, a largely spoiler free review but we're just talking general about the movie and 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 how much we uh, enjoyed it, uh, but it is in essence about the way, and it's historical fact as well. So it's not really so much to of a spoiler situation, but it really is about how then these characters push themselves into the lives of the Osage Nation, and basically, in order to you know steal the oil money or the land rights out from underneath them. That's the and essentially it's the there is you know a, a bunch of things that happen in this movie not least of of course murder which is about um, 
you know the the book that it's based on is essentially about that but it's about the it is in fact it seems to be the case that that necessitated the creation of the FBI so um the FBI isn't really a thing at this ha- at this point but it becomes a thing sort of off the back of these of this uh what is really an in- incident that's lost to history in some ways um or isn't talked about enough um but we'll come back to a few of those details in a minute i'm just going to say that we I think it was released um, yesterday uh, or in the last couple of days, very recently. Uh, We got a chance to see it a few weeks ago. Uh, Lucky, lucky us. And um, so we've had a little bit of time to, well, A, forget some of the finer points maybe because it is a three and a half hour movie full of lots of incredible detail. But perhaps also just to let some of the kind of emotional themes or um, ideas of it sink in a bit. Um, so, uh, yeah, somewhere between a somewhere between a hot take and actually just forgetting what happens in the movie now, a couple of weeks on. But, um, you know, I, for me, it was. I mean, it's 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 master filmmaking. Um, I mean, that's the first thing that you I think you probably associate with it, and uh, it's a powerful experience. Um, how are you feeling about it now? A couple of weeks later, um, I mean, I, I mean, it's as simple as this: do you, do you like the movie? It's a long movie. There's a lot to take in. How much do you like it? I like it a lot. <laughs> I think it's <laughs> that's in the words of uh, Dumb and Dumber. I like it a lot. <laughs> but um, yeah, I'm like ready to watch it again now. Yeah, I'm ready. Like, what was it? Three and a half hours. Mm. I could do it again. I but, could do it again as soon as I came out. Yeah. I was thinking, I need to watch that. And that is, by the way, in a cinema where we were in the... <laughs> in, in it was the, the air conditioning was turned up to, like, incredible levels and we were exceptionally cold because yeah. it was a hot day outside and, and you know... We, Shout out to LFF. Yeah, so, you know, it was very, very cold. But we... If it had been any other movie, I might have left. <laughs> but yeah. it was it was such an incredible movie. Ill. But it was such an incredible movie that it didn't matter. No, exactly. Um, it it just, just draws you in right from the start. I just think it was like such an all-encompassing, I don't know, experience to watch. And I I was just, I spoke to you about this and we're going to get into the details, but like, you know, Lily Gladstone invented acting. Right, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I was so drawn in by her. Um, And then also just like impressed by Leonardo DiCaprio's, I guess, willingness to play such an idiot character. Um, But like with such an empathy, it's not just like, you know what I mean? Well, that's the thing. I mean, so she's like of immense power in the movie. Yeah. And obviously um, she's uh, she's quite sort of st- a still presence or a firm presence. You know, she's even even as the movie progresses where she becomes, uh, you know, she's 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 kind of robbed of 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 uh, some part of herself. But she um, as a performance, you know, and as a kind of character, in the movie it is. uh it's, it's it's such a powerful central performance that draw that draws you in, like you say, and you become, um, you know, she doesn't need to do very much. No, is the beauty I think of it. She sort of forces you to listen to her. You have to. It's almost like you have to lean in. Yes. Um, because she's not overdoing it. You're sort of she in. Won't. You're sort of in her orbit. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. Yeah. She's such um, a powerful character. I just feel like an affinity with that character. Yeah. <laughs> yes. But the film is like obviously about something really terrible and is really emotional and sad and 
powerful, but it's also like really funny. Yes. Right from the start. Yes. In a way that you maybe don't expect. Um, if you think about when Leo first meets De Niro in the film. Yeah. And the conversations that they're having. Um, well, it's just surprisingly funny. Like it treads the line between both of those things without it ever coming out of feeling like a really powerful film. Exceptionally dark film yeah. that manages to be funny. I mean, it's a real, I mean, that's the, again, you know, exceptional talent of, of Scorsese to be able to, 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 to marry those two things. But I mean, the, I think the, the main thing in a way about it um, or the thing that strikes me about it is uh, DiCaprio. I mean, he plays uh, a character who is, you know, a, a, a rube. Is that the right word? You know, he's he's incredibly stupid. Yeah. Uh, in a lot of ways, but um, and there's a lot of evil. But that plays such a strong part in the plot. Yeah. So he's not just stupid for the sake of it. No, no. no. His stupidity makes you question, and as well as De Niro's uh, villainous, mm. but also kind of like I guess fake nice. Mm. Um, they all have these personalities that are like, they all come together to make you question every motive throughout when you're watching it. And you keep thinking like, with Leonardo, you just keep thinking, well, is he innocent? Because he's actually quite stupid and I don't trust that he fully understands the um, implications. But then you question and then you change your mind. And then De Niro, you think, oh, maybe he is nice. He is quite nice to these people. And then you think, no, he's just so insidious with his sort of <laughs> yeah scheming. Well, this is it. I think that's probably the biggest takeaway from the film, again, without sort of spoiling it, it is that what the film is about in essence, and this is a phrase that I know Scorsese has used about other people's films, um, but uh, it, it's, and it's not his original phrase, but it's the banality of evil. It's about the very boring, everyday, um, you know, banal, uh, evil that exists, that which is the real evil in our society. It's the things that maybe you know not everybody can immediately see as evil, and it just works its way into the. I mean, all his films are about really, in, especially in recent times. But they're about you know you talk about um, Wolf of Wall Street and, and many other films of his. They're about the uh, uh, or the Irishman and so on. It's about America as a kind of failed experiment in a way of of um, uh, the, the the evil that lurks everywhere in this experiment is America, you know. Um, and DiCaprio is both a sort of character that is complicit and a kind of patsy at the same time. And what's so fascinating about it, apart from the two things that are most fascinating about their performances, is that DiCaprio's performance shows you a person who is a real person who has real feelings who certainly does show love towards people that he harms um uh, and it is a genuine love but at the same time it cannot really be because you know his actions belie that to some degree and so or to a large degree and so it's about the it's about the um the way in which um that happens in such a subtle way uh and the way that he 
uh, you know, try not to hit, not hit on too many spoilers, but really just that the point of view that he, that people will go along with things. I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's an old story, but people go along with things and maybe not really f- fully, either fully realise the intentions or do not want to, uh, you know, acknowledge the, uh, you know, the, 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 the what's happening. Um, but denial, such mm. a powerful thing. And with the De Niro character... Uh, it's even more fascinating, I think, because it is about the kind of puppet master of that and about how he really is not ever on the surface of it. As you look at him as a presentation, as a person, the way he interacts with people, the way he speaks with people, he's not ever evil. He's never this evil mastermind by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, every time it's always something that he seems to be or is at least implying is in the best interests of those that he's talking to or dealing with and it is exactly the opposite his intentions are exactly the opposite and really it seems to me there are many things that you could equate it to and uh, and maybe the simplest and most broad one is that this is about trump and trump voters <laughs> but um you know it, it it is about that kind of um subtle con and um, that, you know, that, that maybe he himself doesn't even know he's engaging in because he's sort of so mad. But he's so mad and he doesn't seem remotely mad, you know, on the surface, mm-hmm. on the surface. But of course he is because what he's doing is sort of visiting the worst kind of evil you can upon upon this community. So, I mean... And I think it's really good at as a film putting you, the audience, in the position of the people that are being manipulated that doesn't feel like strong enough a word but Mm. by him Mm. so you're looking at him almost as they do i think where you can give him the benefit of the doubt and you can see yourself just being tricked by this (laughs) evil man um because he's so good at wrapping it up as like oh it's you know for family and we're a tribe together and we're like a society and we're you know it's all about like yeah he, he he wants everyone to believe that they're not sort of infiltrating and making extinct yeah this native american tribe he just he just manages to like weasel his way into it in just the most like you say insidious way i'm trying not to give things away either <laughs> well um, i think the but thing- you watch it you watch it and you go along with it and you think that and then you're thinking why am i why do I like this man? <laughs> yeah, but that's the trick of all the great Scorsese movies yeah. is to, at a certain, at, in the beginning, sort of be, uh, you know, at least be somewhat on the side of the protagonist, whether it be Henry Hill in Goodfellas or Jordan Belfort in the, the Wolf of Wall Street or so on and so forth. You're supposed to, like anybody, any human, to empathize with the central characters. And then as it goes along, depending on, you know, and Scorsese films are not really they're never moralistic they're never judgmental they're never saying to you they're never preaching to you and telling you here is what is wrong you have to broadly speaking make up your own mind about that which people find troublesome because they think that but you know if you show that if you show that evil is something that's really obvious and cartoonish then you're not doing anybody any service Well, exactly because that's what it does really well because it is a very complex film and it's emotionally com- complex. And I, there were times when I was looking at Lily Gladstone's character and thinking, almost like, why is she being strung along with this? Like, why can she not see? And then you think, like, it has to present it in this way because this is real and truth. 
and it's showing how people were manipulated. It's not like it's easy looking back and mm. knowing things that have gone wrong and knowing who is the evil, <laughs> who's on the wrong side of history. But it puts you in it mm. so that you almost feel like you're seeing this scenario for the first time and you're not really sure what way you would go and how easy it would be to manipulate you. Well, being that it's lost to history as, as an event, a lot of people will be learning about this for the mm. first time, which is you know one of the great things about the film. Mm. Uh, and also in one of the things that um, it, it sort of occurred to me is that um, there's a, a section very early on in the movie where a lot of the Native Americans are, uh, and I don't know the exact setup of this, but they're trying to get hold of their own money and they often can't get hold of it because they don't have a kind of guardian, which um, I mean, it just obviously it's just about um, systemic racism. Yeah, but, I think those but, are some of the worst scenes when but, she goes to visit and to, say, I need money for this medication. Yes. And they withhold. Yes. So, but the point is, is this easier? One of the things that the film clues you into straight away is it's easier if you ha- are married to a white man because he can be your kind of guardian and he will be able to get hold of the money. So in a way, you know, the, the, the sort of capitalist system is, benef- is, 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 um, is rewarding both uh, the Leo DiCaprio character, who is essentially sort of cozying up to Lily Gladstone's character in order to get at her money. But in order for Lily Gladstone under the system to get hold of her money, she has to. It's easier for her if she cozies up to someone like Leo DiCaprio. So the whole thing is stacked against this community uh, right from the beginning, and it, it makes that clear without making it. You know, it's not. It's never ham-fisted, but it makes it clear the situations um, and allows you to. As I say, with all his movies, it's about at some point you start to split. I mean, maybe it's right in the first scene, but, you know, or, or the second scene, the third scene, the fourth. But somewhere in his movies, it's always a split and it's different for every person. Um, you know, Wolf of Wall Street is probably a really, really, really good example of that because some people who um, watched that movie thought that it was glorifying the whole situation. But those people, like, clearly, A, cannot have watched the movie or B, have, like, no understanding of what it means to be a human because you know it's true to say that stockbrokers were there is a, some sort of famous story of stockbrokers watching the wolf of wall street and cheering as he slashes open the cushion to grab his bag of cocaine before he jumps in his car and smash with his young child in it and smashes it into a wall um because you know they are completely in that brainwashed mindset but any other human has departed from uh, DiCaprio's character a long time before that because he's clearly a uh, reprehensible person um, but it, 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 the thing is it doesn't it, it, you know Scorsese's movies allow you to make the decision because then you can actually make the moral decision rather than being preached to which people don't take well to to say look oh you know aren't you you know aren't these people bad because you reject that and it, it gives it actually is more of an anti-hero thing if you really want to show people, you know, how terrible someone is, you let the audience make up their mind based on a fairly straightforward presentation of what happened. Of course, with all your amazing artistic flair, because, I mean, the movie is absolutely stacked with the incredible, you know, I mean, the set design, like the research that's gone into this is just sort of off the charts, mm. Both historically and sort of particularly, particularly around the Osage Nation. Mm. I mean, like it's obviously, you know, it's obviously done in deep consultation with the Osage community, um, and also, 
I would say the editing, I mean, surely this is Thelma Schoonmaker getting another Oscar because Thelma Schoonmaker being Martin Scorsese's long-time editor since Raging Bull. And she won the Oscar for Raging Bull, the first one, but I think this would be her fourth Oscar. Surely it is because a three and a half, the, the achievement of a three and a half hour movie that does not drag at any point, I think for anybody that's reasonably watching this, you know, I saw a, um, well, you t- I mean, length from a point of view of length, I mean, it doesn't, the pace is just perfect all the way. Yeah. And it doesn't rush. I know a couple of people have said to me, oh, I'm interested in this, but I'm not sure I can sit through a three and a half hour. You can, yeah. <laughs> because it just doesn't feel like a three and a half hour movie. Yeah. And it doesn't feel like anything's there that shouldn't be there, that any of it takes too long, that any of it could be removed. It feels perfect. Yeah. Because it's a world. Yeah, it does enough justice to the actual history of what happened, as well as sort of, you know, keeping you entertained throughout. Yeah, yeah. like, you know, that's obviously a priority. We've all got to be entertained at all times. But the point is, is that it's like, well, here's a couple of interesting things about the pacing of it. But the editing does stay in your mind, sorry. Yes. The editing does. And you think about the shots. It has those shots that are like almost like archival footage. Yes. um, Which are not real but yes made to look yes and then I, I mean i can't get the shot out of my head with the oil yeah bursting which i think probably people will see in the trailer yeah i think so but yeah i mean and and scorsese when we went to see martin scorsese in person <laughs> there uh, it is. wow yeah <laughs> uh, um and when he's doing a talk in london uh, a couple of weeks ago around the time of the release of the not the release sorry the premiere of the movie um obviously it's only just come out as a uh, a theatrical release but he was talking about the the fact that there was a common understanding that uh, native americans yeah uh, had uh oil money yeah and that they were often depicted in cinema of the time as sort of having oil wells springing up behind them yeah and they're sort of dancing around dancing so he's sort of um playing into that uh popular media view which is all but forgotten now um but of the time of native americans you know being exceptionally wealthy group of people um but he you know um i was gonna say about the editing in terms of pacing and what have you so i mean yeah thelma schoonmaker you know and and obviously she always collaborates heavily with martin scorsese but like she has to win the oscar for this i can't see how anybody else is going to do anything that's going to touch this in terms of editing it just doesn't even but weirdly and will you know i balked at this and so will you but (laughs) there is some suggestion uh from martin scorsese that he and this is the genius of martin scorsese right because we have recently or not not too long ago done a podcast where we really went in really went in on ari aster uh director of, of, of of midsommar and Bo is afraid and one of the, the genius of Martin Scorsese is that he can take something good out of anything. Uh, and one of the influences in terms of pacing. But you see, it's, it was those two movies for Martin Scorsese. Uh, even though he already, like, obviously him and Thelma have a well-established way of working and a way, well-established, the, the way in which they create rhythm throughout their movies is miraculous. It's one of my favorite things about Scorsese movies. But uh, yeah, he took he took the pacing of those, and I think uh, in a sense, and and repurposed them for what what he needed. He sort of took repurposed in- them for good. Yeah, <laughs> I see what you're saying. You can use your powers for good yeah, or evil. Exactly. Yeah, uh, but so that and also um, that uh, the, um, the 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 editing um, and the and the classic kind of Scorsese camera work. Mm. like 
panning across yeah. in the streets when there's like car racing or whatever. I don't know. Well, there's so it many. Just stays. It sticks in your mind, in your psyche. There's so many of the classic things in terms of. Well, th- this is the other thing I was going to say. Sorry about editing before I forget. Is the length of it. Yeah, people will be tempted to think that it could be trimmed down. And it probably could be trimmed a little if that's what you desired, but it isn't what's best for the film. Mm. It wouldn't serve the film and the immersiveness because the complexity of the film, the complexity of these historical incidents and the length of the film that it, to get all of that complexity in, the key element to that is making you actually, rather than explaining and working through the plot for you in a way that's, you know... To, to, to get you to understand the complex series of events it allows you to live your life in that world which means that you don't need really um as far as a, a a film can do you don't really need the explanation for you because you are living it so you're seeing the different people doing the different things and it's unfolding before you so even someone who who will struggle with a complex plot will be able to understand yeah because it isn't a complex plot no. because it is just life and life is complex and you understand difficult things in your life because you go through them and it is the same process in the movie it is a reflection of, of, of life and I mean Scorsese that's what I was going to say about the the, the the moral complexity as well these films are really this is life happening before you and then it holds a mirror up to the viewer and you decide based on your own moral compass where you depart from the characters which you know there are in again these various movies they all work slightly differently but they have that same quality of where do you depart from these people and um <laughs> by the end obviously you know it's it, it's it's quite obvious but but never ham-fisted uh and never never too strong um i mean it's it's extraordinary in endless ways and i think when we go back to it we could probably do you know hours of just discussing what we I mean not even talk about anything that we're going to we have or we'll talk about here and just do it all over again and talk about new stuff yeah because it's, it's definitely one of those it's one of those big films that also has like I guess kind of an ensemble mm. of people mm. one of the funny things about it is there like there's I mean there's like so much like online the worst thing in the world is online discourse. Let me just say up front, that is the worst that people talking on. And this does not form a part of it. But yeah, people talking about X, on X about films. And, you know, one of the, the, the fascinating things is seeing people's actually having kind of reaction to Brendan Fraser's character turning up. Oh, yeah. Um, and actually, I think it's a, a masterstroke because in a way it's a bit like, it's a bit like the Trump story. And then when Rudy, Rudy Giuliani turned up. You know, just like just just some crazy, huge, like absolute, you know, some carnival showman just arriving, you know, to kind of, uh, I mean, just be a ludicrous person. Because who defends a ludicrous person uh, or, you know, who, you know, what I'm saying it's, it's like the more ludicrous people then come in on top of the ludicrous people in yeah, this world. Yeah, and, you yeah. know, there is that sort of quality about it. Um, and I think I do think it is. There is a very specific moment where De Niro's character says something. I won't remember the line, but he says something that we have to take back control. And of course, that's maybe a um, a, uh, a slogan more associated with the with the UK government, actually. But it is that was clearly a, r- a riff on "Make America Great Again" stuff on MAGA stuff, 
And so the take back control line that De Niro has about we've got to take control, back control of this community or our community or however he phrases it, 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 it just is a moment without being too obvious where someone's ringing a bell in the back of your head and saying, this is Trumpism. And, and again, Trumpism is not really a new story. There's always been these sort of people. And in a way, that's what Scorsese is showing, that these are a condition of the American project, that these people come along and they're part of 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 of, of America. Um, and the other thing that's interesting uh, that I wanted to bring up is, yeah, the kind of, in terms of huh, online discourse, sorry to... The, the, what a horrible phrase because the dis- discourse is really way too generous a term for the things that people say on the internet but um there was a sort of uh discussion about a um by a, a, a chap called christopher cote or christopher cote uh I'm not, I'm not exactly sure how you say his name but he was the um so this film has basically been in, the, the osage nation has been embedded in this film like lots of people from the community have been put into the film in a really deep way um, and even Chief Standing Bear, leader of the Osage Nation, has given his explicit... Yeah, I was going to ask, yeah. when they have their meetings and they talk mm. about what's going on amongst themselves, it feels so real. Yes, because a lot of those people, I think, are yeah. just of They're the just, community. Yeah, yeah. speaking yeah. Non-actors. Yeah. yeah. Um, so there's a deep authenticity mm. about the Osage Nation and um, a deep respect for it. But the, the problem with the movie, in a way, and it's not a problem, I mean, with the movie, but the problem with life is, is that, you know, that is about terrible things that happen to them um but anyway so aside from that what i was going to say is this chap christopher cote or cote not exactly sure i say his name but he was a language consultant on the movie and i can tell from you don't know this clip that i'm talking about but he was on the red carpet asked about his feelings he he basically taught lily gladstone how to speak osage which is amazing she was saying because like he is younger than her Mm. Uh, and so she loves the idea that you know this heritage is with Mm. people who are even younger than Mm. you know this is not being forgotten yeah um but he was saying that um and i'll sort of read what he says and then you can sort of see the interesting thing about it but people were using what what he said uh, taking what he said in various ways the worst of which was people were thinking that he was slamming Scorsese which is just totally I think it's what's totally untrue anyway what he said was he was nervous about the release of the film and now I've seen it I have some strong opinions he's doing a red carpet interview if you've got x on twitter uh (laughs) then you um if you've got the musk app then you'll know uh what I'm talking about perhaps but um he says as an osage I really wanted this to be I sort of could break this down a little bit but I really wanted this to be from the perspective of Molly, that's Lily Gladstone's character, and what her family experienced. But I think it would take an Osage to do that. Uh, and then he says, Martin Scorsese not being Osage, I think he did a great job representing our people. But this history is being told almost from the perspective of, he talks about then Leo's character. Um, and he sort of says that they give the character this conscience and kind of depict that there's a love. Uh, and he's saying, and I won't spoil it, but what he's, because he sort of touches on a spoiler, but he says, but when the things that happen in the film happen, um, that's not love. You know, that's just sort of beyond abuse. Mm. Um, and he says, I think in the end, the question that you can be left with is, how long will you be complacent with racism? 
How long will you go along with something and not say something, not speak up? How long will you be complacent? I think that's because this film isn't made for the, an Osage audience. It was made for everybody, not Osage. For those that have been disenfranchised, they can relate. But for other countries that have their acts and their history of oppression, this is an opportunity for them to ask themselves this question of morality. And that's how I feel about this film. Now, people have misunderstood this statement entirely, thinking that what he's saying is that Martin Scorsese shouldn't have made this film. But what he's saying is, I would have liked to have seen an Osage make this, but obviously that's, you know, uh, to, to, I would like to have seen this more from an Osage perspective, but that really shouldn't should be an Osage person and not Martin Scorsese yeah. making it. So Martin Scorsese has done something, which is to make a movie for other people who now, which is ex valuable in its own right, which is that they have to sit and deal with the uncomfortable questions that, you know, they may be in some way, in some, even in some other wider scheme, be complicit in. So, you know, he, Martin Scorsese isn't pretending that he's Osage and he's going to, you know, make this film about, you know, and pretend that he knows everything about that. He's going to embed himself in that community and then make a film about what the, um, what the white interlopers into this community did and then ask America to sit in front of this film and look at it and think, how complicit was our, you know, w were we in it? Um, because obviously America is not a majority Native American country. Uh, so the other people have for to... For a reason. Exactly, for <laughs> the reasons that this movie is setting out in a sense. And so he has to, he's asking people to look at this and decide how complicit they were with it. And that's what he's saying, that it is, it's so good because this is a, a movie for everybody who then has to ask how long will they be complacent? Because people were taking it as though he was saying how long will we be complacent with this racism that an Osage is not making this movie. Mm. That's not what he was saying. No. What he was saying was how long this movie is telling you, look at this and ask how long you will you be complacent with the racism that's shown here or in other areas you know, the, uh, relating to other things that are similar or have some sort of relationship. As with all Scorsese movies, they are a world, you know, they show people who do not have morality and ask you to try to figure out where, you know, where the, where they are acting in a moral or immoral way. And you've got to decide, you've got to be the grown up. You've got to say, this is right, this is wrong, mm. you know. Yeah. But one of the, one of the things you just mentioned, I think, from his quote was the way it gives Leo's character a conscience. Um, I think that just lends a level of empathy to the Lily Gladstone character because otherwise you'd be implying that she's some sort of idiot yeah. <laughs> that goes along with some outright Ob obvious caricature monster. of an abuser. Yeah. And how can you... She needs more complexity than that because life is complex. Because and these relationships do exist where either there is love or there is the appearance of love which underlies the abuse that's what allows the abuse to unfold and what keeps someone with the other person and you know, this instance is obviously much more complex because it's like so well racist yeah um it's kind of underlying i mean ugh, it's, it's so it's almost too complex to talk about yeah <laughs> it's 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 made it's made clear early on that DiCaprio's character is stupid. Yeah. And it's a, a sort of an enjoyable joke early on. Yeah. But, but then there's the, there is the element of like, he does meet her 
independently of his uncle's wishes for him to meet her. Mm. So they strike up their relationship almost on um, authentic grounds for mm. a relationship. And then, but very quickly, this Robert De Niro's character's evil motivations for him to be with her unfold. And that's one of the things that makes it so complex as a relationship and as a plot. Because throughout, you're kind of going, you know, is he doing this because he loves her? Should they be together? Is he is he just enacting Robert De Niro's wishes? It's It, th- it well, makes th- you ask questions. I think you've hit on so many of the great complexities, which is what I was going to say in a way was like, because he is so, he's, he's made clear that he's stupid at the beginning. And that plays into it in two ways. It's the obvious way that it shows that he can be manipulated by De Niro's character, uh, both in a way that he knowingly is being manipulated and pressured and both in a way that he doesn't know because he's not that clever. And also you're saying, well, it would be, it would make her look bad as a character or it would, it would sort of be unrealistic, let's say, if she was going with an, an, an idiot. Uh, sorry, if, she, if she's going with, she's going with <laughs> she, If she was in a relationship with someone who was, you know, she, who, who genuinely, it was obvious, didn't care for her yeah. and was obviously trying to harm her. Yeah. But the point is, is that he isn't clever enough to understand all of the implications immediately or is at least good enough in denial so that he does have an authentic feeling for her which is what allows them to sort of you know allows the thing to sort of go on further yeah and I also don't think it's I mean maybe I'm taking the quote wrong now as well but I just don't think it's useful or interesting to present any character usually as totally devoid of a conscience just Mm. because we know they've done something wrong because then it implies that this can't happen among normal human beings Mm. which it did Mm. if we're going to suddenly imply that there's some sort of group of caricature evil like psychopaths with no conscience yeah first of all it's just not accurate and secondly you have to tell the story of you know, it's the learning from history things, like the idea that things can happen again. Things yeah. are happening right now. Yes. Well, that have happened in the past. Um, the point is, people with a conscience are susceptible to evil. Yes. And anyone can be manipulated. It's... And also, but also equally, that's the beauty of the film, because people um, with a conscience can be manipulated into doing things that are... Um, that that are completely awful, yeah. but also people who have the motivation uh, to do things that are completely awful, a may not always know they're doing it initially, or will the, the denial will be strong. But also those that are, maybe those that are sociopaths or psychopaths, have an appearance of not being so, which is also a powerful thing in itself to understand that people who are let's say that i mean obviously this is a very broad statement but they are evil do not or want to bring evil Mm. are not uh they do not have the appearance of being evil Mm. at least to to you who is being you know who's in the eye of the storm yeah and so i mean that that runs through about like all the characters i mean it's not even like i can think of those all these words applying to so many characters Mm. in the movie it's so deep uh on so many levels um and it's a great i think late period masterwork from a director who you know the i don't know whether people people have this sort of difficulty about discussing whether or not this is like 
the last you know the last few movies of Martin Scorsese but he himself says that he's only got a couple more in him and this is a hugely important piece of historical reckoning yeah um about with America about itself one of the nice things has been reading Scorsese's interviews recent interviews that he's given and just seeing him say just sort of calmly that he's happy with it yeah and he's enjoyed it but it's like that that sounds <laughs> a little bit more i don't know meaningless or something but it's actually i've found that sort of touching so it's like here's someone who's had a massive career across decades and is culminating potentially in in, in a spite of hollywood yeah. Not because of Hollywood, in spite of Hollywood, against all the odds, against all the people that didn't want him to make all these movies, so many yeah. of them that he didn't want to make. And here he is convincing uh, streamers, a streamer in mm. Apple mm. to give him hundreds of millions of dollars mm. to make a movie, which, by the way, I think is really embarrassing for Netflix, when Netflix gave him all that money to make The Irishman and then didn't really put it in cinemas. And now this movie is raking it in in cinemas. Uh, and it's, you know, in a way, maybe a darker film. We could uh, get an Irishman re-release. Yeah, but you know, it would have if they'd have put it into cinemas, it would yeah. have made a load of money for them. That the, the traditional model of putting things in cinemas is better than this the new model that Netflix thinks of just putting it on streaming and not telling anyone it's and there, not, yeah. burying it actually yeah. within Netflix. Yeah. Whereas <laughs> who's know, it for? Yeah. Well, <laughs> money laundering. <laughs> yeah, Netflix, the greatest money laundering operation in all history. But I, I guess the point is that. You know, it has been, um, it has been, it has been a huge success in cinemas already, even though it's been in a couple of days. And I, you know, I read a statistic which is that forty-six percent of the people that went in the opening weekend were under the age of thirty-five, which is just a wonderful yeah. thing to know, yeah. considering the kind of length and difficulty of this subject and the kind of, you know, I mean, this and Oppenheimer and other movies. Uh, up and home, which we will eventually get to reviewing, I suppose, um, is... Uh, oh, well, I will say now, it's his best film. Oh, well, there you go. No <laughs> podcast needed. Nolan's best film, Oppenheimer. Um, but, you know, it, it, it is a really heartening thing to see. Uh, yeah. And really, uh, I'm, I'm... And how nice is it that we got to see Scorsese talking about the need for the big screen experience yeah. to continue? Yeah, exactly. I mean, that was a all-timer moment for me, but yeah. Um, well, I think it's easy to forget when you're streaming, not to get into like film theory now, <laughs> but just the sort of voyeuristic aspect of being in a dark room with a massive screen in front of you and sort of, it's like just for you and you're in it. And it seems to, especially a film like this, where it gives you the room to breathe. Mm. I think it's so true what you're saying about like it puts you in the world for a long enough time that you just end up sort of reacting and responding and making judgments about about people and things that are happening um you can't do that when you're watching it on a laptop or a tv or streaming it i'm sorry uh, well a especially with that netflix audio just a quick yeah oh god the state no, of it and no the vision to be honest but let, 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 let's let, just quickly a couple of other things one i did see mark commode talking about the length mark commode is an idiot talking about <laughs> no not in every aspect of his life but regarding the length <laughs> of the killers of the flower moon who he what did he say i, I just can't even really believe it i mean are there, every are you not a serious critic if you sort of I say sort it's of, too long i'm just gonna say uh, now he's really the sort of person that tries to get like i don't know i feel like he's so desperate for a young audience and for like 
Do you know what I mean? Like, well, he's he, one of those people pleasers. Well, he was talking about the fact that he thought that this could be... It's just like, I don't even know why these words... Because every other review, you know, that is of note, really just talks about the film is 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 good. And um, maybe there's a line about how long it is. Mm. But, Mark, uh, you know, Mark Commode is like saying that it should have been really like four hour for one hour episodes on Apple. I'm just like, you... What the fuck? <laughs> Sorry. Do we swear? <laughs> Let's just leave it in because it, it deserves it. But he, he's completely lost his mind if he thinks that. I mean, Is he being paid by Apple? I don't know. He wasn't saying Apple. That's he too did, weird. I don't think he mentioned Apple, but I think he was just saying that we're getting to a point now in the culture where people... Um, don't feel that they can go to to to, to cinemas for that long. Is it? Right. So we and, should so we should pander to that rather than trying to educate people on why. Yeah. A different version of reality may be better. Well, the thing is, movies it's are not, different to <laughs> series. They are complete. Yeah. Worlds unto themselves. They're not a continuing episodic story. They have a different quality. Now I know that David Lynch would say that Twin Peaks: The Return, like all however many hours of episodes are, is one thing and it's a movie. But that's David Lynch. You know, he's not he's not living by the normal rules of the universe like the rest of us. And we love him but, for and it. And we love him for it. But you know, th- this idea that streaming, that this should be on streaming and that it's an extreme, it's more of a streaming experience. It's absolutely ludicrous because it's one of the most cinematic movies that yeah. you could possibly imagine, and it has to be seen. I mean. I don't know. He did. He was. He 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 did. Not everything he said was wrong. But so the, some of the people, broadly speaking, people who haven't seen the movie who think it's too long is it's a ludicrous thing to say because it's exactly the length that it needs to be. Well, because... my question is, too long for what? Yeah. Too long for your own level of intelligence? Yeah. Like too long because you need a cigarette break like what are you on about yeah uh, well look, too long for what in fairness the only thing i'll say is and this is not really related to killers of flower moon because i think it deserves that continuous being sat in one place with the continuous build up and pacing and rhythm of what it is but i do think we're missing a trick which is basically down to financials where um some movies out there could put in intermissions because actually intermissions yeah. are, are a really cool device if yeah. you've got the right kind of movie. But that does not apply to Killers of the Flower Moon. That needs, you need to be sat living in the rhythm of the tempo of yeah. it, which is not something you can do at home, um, uh, you know, unless you're really disciplined. It's something that a theatre can only provide. Because it's not the kind of, now we're getting into like <laughs> four hour films yeah. and intermissions. Yeah. But you can, there's such like a specific formula for a film with an intermission or like the classic ones that I've seen mm. where mm. you can feel it coming and mm. you're like, it's nearly time for the intermission the, because the, ben- the conflict is happening or mm. they're like on the, on the up again or something like you could feel something big coming. It's not that kind of film. And certainly sometimes with, with a movie like Ben-Hur or Lawrence of Arabia, yeah. the intermission is an act in and of itself of making the film feel more epic. Yeah, Because exactly. you break from it for 20 minutes and then go back to it and then you've got... And it's like there's a whole other world, the other side of the intermission. And so it gives that epic sweep. Yeah. But when you've got a film that is based on ri- the rhythms, yeah. you know, and sometimes very specifically on Robbie, the late Robbie Robertson of the band does the score. Mm. Um, you know, he's passed away now, but this mm. is going to be his last score, mm. obviously. Um, the 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 great band, the band frontman Robbie Robertson. The score quite often has the tempo, which is obviously like interlinked with Native American music, mm. that builds up a kind of 
I wouldn't say it's the uh, increasing tempo of, like, say, the end of Goodfellas, where the cuts get faster and it gets speedier and speedier. Just more a uh, slow intensity that has to be maintained consistently for you to feel really the uh, genius of the art that mm. uh, that Scorsese and, of course, in that case, Thelma Schoonmaker, uh, are, who we're lucky enough to be going to see this week, Thelma Schoonmaker in person talking about um, some of the things. And I should probably, if anybody's got this deep into the podcast plug, um, that we're showing uh, Peeping Tom, which is one of the great, um, uh, which is by the uh, late husband of Thelma Schoonmaker, of, of Powell and Pressburger fame, uh, Michael Powell, and one of Scorsese's chief influences, uh, Peeping Tom, when we were talking about voyeurism in the cinema, that is really the final word on mm. voyeurism in the cinema. Um, so, you know, November 1st, you know what I'll to do. There. You know what to do. <laughs> um, uh, but uh, so, yeah, uh, check out our listings online as ever. But um, it is, um, uh, you know, it, that, that, that's the move. This, Scorsese has made this film at the length and in the format that is precisely to intended to be, which is the cinema. That is the point. He's made it that way. That's how he envisioned it. That's how it's been executed. That's how it should be received. And I have an ultimate respect for that. Um, of course, people will watch it at home in the end, but it'll never be the same. I'm sure that when people are binging Netflix, they just sit for more than three hours and don't move. Like, yeah. is it? No, no, it's common. Like, it's a common. I don't know why when it's transferred to cinema, people think it's such a slog. It's a common discussion that people will, you know, talk about that people will obviously sit and they say, oh, well, I'm not going to watch a three hour movie, but I will watch four episodes of this series back to back. Yeah, exactly. It's like, get the snacks in. Yeah. Get the popcorn. Yeah. Take a blanket. Well, it's a commitment, isn't it? I mean, it's like anything in the modern era because everything's so readily available on streaming. There is no commitment. And so a lot of times with great art, you only get out what you put in. Yeah, but it's such a payoff. Exactly. But you you only get out what you put in. And so if you, like now, if you want to listen to an album, uh, you can just click it on Spotify and listen to it for a couple of minutes and they go, I didn't really like that and just mm. turn it off. Mm. But if it's actually, but in the old days, <laughs> you know, not like the old days were better in every way because they weren't, but one of the good things was you could go to a record shop, you would have to, first of all, go through the process of seeing the guy at the counter who looked at you like, you're buying that, are you really? Like, why are you you're, even in here? You're buying that, are you? <laughs> and so you had to pass that, which was like the first level. And then the next level was going home and you just spent, I don't know, whatever it would have been in those days, £12 on this album, yeah. and so which was worth more than it is now. And you would be committed to this album so you would even if you didn't like it immediately you would listen to it several times all the way through and suddenly it might just come to you why it's so good and become one of your or you know another good example is maybe the least favorite song on an album might become your Mm. most favorite song by the end of the time that you spent listening to it over the course of several weeks or months but anyway we're really getting to film theory here just we'll sort of wrap this up by saying that um the thing about the perhaps the most powerful thing uh, and we'll, we'll try to avoid the spoiler on this one, but uh, it is a much discussed thing, I think, um, about the film, is the ending of the film, which is in essence a um, one of the most important scenes in any Scorsese movie ever, um, because it is really the director's own recognition of the people... The, the real people are affected in, in, in these stories. Um, the real, uh, he, he, the 
both the limitations and the um, almost unlimited uh, ability, uh, storytelling ability um, about these stories. Um, and the, 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 it's hard to say without saying exactly yeah. what happens, but basically there is a moment at the end of the film that wraps it all up together. Um, which, by the way, I think just before that is slightly a bit of a pop at the culture of true crime podcasts um, about the way that these things become fodder and entertainment yeah. for people. Because I saw it more. You're, you're probably right. Well, I mean, it, maybe but it's dire- inadvertent. It's referring to, I guess, like actual radio radio plays. plays. Mm. Thank you for the word that mm. was not coming to my brain. <laughs> <laughs> um I like how it's done through that as a vehicle. Mm. We spoke about this briefly. I'm not going to give anything away, but let's just say if it was a Spielberg film, it would just be tacked on the end. Like, and now mm. I'm going to address the audience. Yeah. I'm going to tell you this and you're going to feel this about it. Yeah, it's, it's not prescribed. But it's done through the context of the period. Yeah. Which yeah. I think is very intelligent. Yeah. <laughs> but it has a really, the last moments of the film... Um, are very small and subtle and low, but it's a real powerful way um, to acknowledge everything, not only about the film itself, but about the filmmakers, about the Osage Nation, about the about Martin Scorsese, about everything. It's just incredible how it, 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 it what that I think means when you're watching it. Yeah. So I think you know, do. Um, you will be paying. Watch it to the end. Yeah, watch it to the end. Yeah, <laughs> it's not sort of. I'm not talking about an after credits uh, Marvel <laughs> oh, moment, gosh, no. uh, you know, post credit scene. <laughs> Next but, time, yeah, but we're we're just talking about the way it's wrapped up. It's a really, really powerful moment, and maybe um, a great. Even though we hope that Marty's got a couple more in him, and we really, I think he he does because I think he just has no choice. He's insatiable. He just has to make these movies. He doesn't have a choice in the matter. It's his personal passion and. He kind of can't be You're stopped. You're going to make him. I mean, just being in the room for a couple of hours with him that day and hearing the things. And yeah. anytime you see him on an interview you and, and see him talking about film, you could just hear the the exceptional depth of love that he has for the art form and that he's just casually throwing out all these millions of references, which, you know, I, I'm luckily enough to be in a point that I get most of them. Mm. But I can, even from my vantage point of spending years and years and years and years and years and years of watching millions and millions and millions of things and reading about it obsessively like a crazed person, I still can see this sort of valley of incredible information that lies beyond what he's saying mm. and that, that I don't know about. He's a film historian. Yeah, the truth. Yeah, I mean, the film historian, isn't he? So yeah. um, the film is every bit as inspirational as, as the man himself. And I think it, it it's wrapped up uh, and surmised very well in the, in that closing scene, which uh, I think. But if let's say Devil's Advocate, yeah. <laughs> if let's say this is his last film, yes. How do you feel about that? Oh well, I, I don't think I've even got the level of emotion to, to. No, but how do you feel it would stand up? Like, do you think it's an acceptable final film? Well, let me just You've say, got to consider this, Henry. Let me tell you something <laughs> about. Um, and this is um, something I guess I intuitively had as a point of view. Yeah. But I think, uh, but I, Scorsese years ago actually confirmed for me the feeling that I had because anyone that knows anything about my film taste is that I am more interested in the arc of a director across his whole, his or her whole career. Talking about Scorsese, his whole career. You know, I think there are people that have made better films than Martin Scorsese, but has anybody made a body of work? certainly in, in who's still working anyway, mm. that is comparable, difficult to say that there is. And 
so one of the things that Martin Scorsese, I saw him say years ago, which I just thoroughly agree with, is that, you know, people will say, oh, well, this isn't his best film. This is his best film. And he says, I don't subscribe to this idea that every film should be better than the last one that you made. They're all, you know, it's all part of a rich tapestry. And so is this one of his better films? Yes, but I mean, is but they're all good in some, I mean, they're almost all amazing in every way, mm. you know, really, when you look at it. So um, objectively speaking, um, even Marty's worst film is better than most people's best film. Mm. Um, but um, it's really about the, the rich tapestry of his entire work and the way that's woven into the story of who he is as a filmmaker. And so I don't know, is this an acceptable final film? Uh, I don't know what the answer to that is at all, but I will say it is certainly a perfect, another perfect, perfectly imperfect uh, entry into an amazing uh, back catalogue of films that sits alongside the others um, and adds something not only is great in and of itself, but adds amazing context and richness to his other pieces of cinema and allows you to, like any great director's film should, allows you to have a deeper understanding of those films too. Um, and that's <laughs> that's really the whole point of being a director, I think. Mm. But, uh, I mean... I think people... We're going to wrap up, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think people have that approach to music as well, don't they? Like yeah. whenever you talk about someone's new album and people are always so tempted to be like, oh, I preferred their first album. It's like... Yeah irrelevant yeah <laughs> why is it this comp- constant competition with yourself to be and also what is better yes are we talking about sales anyway yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, uh, we can get into the deep yeah we won't go into it we can get into deep water on that but yeah it's certainly a very very important movie a really really great movie that is both about something really really powerful that a story that absolutely needs to be told but also <laughs> would you believe it entertaining and funny at the same time incredible piece of work Incredible balancing act. Uh, and there he is again cementing himself as the greatest living director that we have. If you haven't seen it, go and watch it in the cinema. Yeah, in the cinema. Um, and just, you know, have a wee before you go in. It's that simple. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, it's that simple. Um, or go for a wee yeah. <laughs> partway through and then like use your head to piece together what you might have missed or yeah. like, you know, find your way back into the story. That's, it's not hard. That's James Cameron's current assertion is that we need to normalise going to the toilet during a film. Truly but- though. <laughs> like, what are you going to miss that is so essential that you then cannot understand the rest of the film? Or go for a wee before. It would be terrible luck. If you need a wee, then the thing is, it's such a complex, densely complex film. It's nice to see. You want to see every bit. But just go for a wee. And I then... mean, I would never leave halfway through it because no. of like, anxiety of like even asking someone to move for me. Yeah. <laughs> it's just not an option. But, you know, we go, you, go, you can go for a wee and then in the middle of the film and then come back and see the film again the next day. Or yeah. another day, because that's what I would do. If yeah. I missed a moment of a Scorsese movie because I had we to, the old I'd go days back and see it. Where it just rolled. Yeah. And you'd just like catch it halfway through and then watch it. <laughs> no, the worst. The, round. the worst. Hitchcock put a stop to that, didn't he? Oh, did Broadly, he? yeah. Psycho was the one where you normally people people could, loved that. People could walk into a film, yeah, yeah, any time back in the day. But but Hitchcock said, "I'll not allow theatre managers to get people to come in part way through because you the, know you need to see the movie yeah, as it right, is from right, the right, beginning, right, and yeah. you you know." And so he basically that's the culture came from from him saying. You know, because otherwise you're watching it and you well, already know what's coming. Well, more than that is that you, if you go in and you like, you sort of see. Um, if you go in and you see a twist happen in front of you, but you haven't watched the first hour and a half, then what, the twist doesn't even mean anything. 
And so, you know, he wanted people to see the discoveries that are in Psycho. Spoiler alert for Psycho, there are twists. <laughs> but he wanted that to come from the back, off the back of the build-up. You know, yeah. he wanted it to be a complete experience. And um, I, we have to, I guess we have to thank Hitchcock for that. Um, although people seem to be trying to turn away from it and just, you know, watch it on streaming instead. <laughs> but anyway, don't do that. Go to the cinema, um, whether it's ours or others mainly ours but if it you know Mostly go, us. go and see things in that format because of being around other people you know that's what matters i think in these situations mm-hmm. seeing it as a community and seeing it the way the director intended so it's just interesting to hear other people's responses like throughout a film like when people laugh at things and you think why are you laughing at that i wouldn't laugh at that and then you sort of think oh rethink it there are different ways people see this yeah well that's you, know. you get a whole another level when you're on your own you you'll miss out on all that nuance that other people see mm. um and again sometimes it's and sometimes it's not just i'm gonna have to wrap this up but sometimes it's not just that other people laugh or make a reaction like a gasp but um yeah i think uh you don't just react from people's reactions actually sitting in a room and watching it with the knowledge that other people are there you think about it differently. You think about it as a person in a community. When you're on your own at home, you almost have, like, I would say, like maybe a selfish reaction. Yeah, I agree. So it is a really completely different viewing experience. And uh, when a film is as multi-layered, as multifaceted, and every line and every moment has so many different meanings, being able to get at as many of those meanings in your first look um, is a really fascinating experience and something you can only do in a theatre. But anyway, that's the White Wall Cinema podcast. Uh, and we'll see you again for another one. Maybe there's another one that is an old one or a new one that you can click on right now. Uh, and uh, we'll see you again. Thanks very much for listening. Oh.